Hi, my name is Eric, and I am an alcoholic and an addict. This is really, my story is a story of really two different recoveries. I got sober when I was young and stayed sober for about eight years. And then I drank again for a couple of years, and now I've been sober again nine years. And it's really two very different, those are two very different recovery stories. So I'll just kind of start in the beginning with growing up, and then uh, we'll talk about my first trip through recovery, because I think there's a lot there, and then we'll kind of get more caught up to today. Um, growing up, I was, like I've heard a lot of people in recovery programs talk about, just never quite felt right, never quite felt 100% comfortable in my own body. I was in trouble very, very early on. I was a kleptomaniac by like the age of 10. Um, just just not, not, well, uh, not well adjusted, didn't cope very well with things. And um, I didn't drink a lot in my earliest years. I think I drank through high, the early part of high school a few times. Um, but I drank strangely. I drank strangely from the very beginning, looking back. My first time I drank alcohol was a bottle of Scope. And uh, I did it because some friend said, I think you can get drunk if you drink Scope. And I, and I don't even really know what drunk hardly was. But I drank a bottle of Scope, and which I continued to drink mouthwash a good number of times, um, which I'm not entirely sure my stomach has ever recovered from. I... Uh, I would. I got to the point where I would drink a bottle of Pepto Bismol first before I drank the mouthwash, and um, I, I, uh, I went on a. My mom sent me on a church trip one spring break, and I got the entire trip drunk on mouthwash, which is a disaster because everybody, no one else was going to drink the Pepto Bismol first, and everybody's throwing up, and so I didn't drink normally. I I also remember a few times in those years, like we would go out drinking. I remember drinking a bunch of vodka one night and I woke up the next morning at about 7.30 and I saw the vodka and I thought, why not put some in my orange juice and just started drinking again. So I didn't do it often, but when I did it, it was not, you know, I can look back and go, well, that doesn't strike me as the way everybody drinks. Um, I founded a tutoring program, though, for inner city kids when I was 16. And when I saw what alcohol and drugs were doing in the lives of those young kids, I just swore it off for a couple years. I kind of became a straight edge, not going to touch that. And that was the end of drinking and drugs for me for probably three years. Um, after high school, I, um, I went away for a while and I was traveling and I came back and my best friend was dating my girlfriend. And... Um, so I was obviously upset, and somebody said, well, here, have a drink, and I just was at a point then where I was like, I don't care, and I drank that night, and I think the switch just flipped immediately um, because I was I was rarely, you know, there was rarely a day from then until really six years later that I got uh, sober the first time that I wasn't intoxicated in some way or other on some substance or other. I was just off to the races, and... Um, for a good long time, the the races were good. I loved it. I mean, I loved what it did for me. I, I drank and I no longer cared about that best friend or that girlfriend. I looked at him and thought, you know, who's having fun now? Um, and so I just was, was off to the races. And the story is pretty similar to most people that go through recovery. It starts out really good. It starts out solving a lot of problems. Um, I could I could cope, I could talk, I had fun, made me feel alive. And it eventually ends up 
uh, you know, causing way, way, way more problems in the end. And, and that was my, that was my story. I started, uh, drinking. I very quickly started, uh, smoking marijuana. Um, and by the time I got sober at the age of 24, I was a heroin addict. And so I just kind of went through that progression. And I think I knew, I knew several years before I got clean that something wasn't right. I think I suspected it a couple years into it. Um, and I was around a bunch of people who drank like me, but yet something just felt different to me. And I remember I thought, well, I'm going to, I decided I would follow a friend to San Francisco. I would move out there with him and that would give me a chance to kind of get my life back on track, the geographical cure as we talk about. And, um, I remember coming to on a park bench somewhere in Berkeley that first night, and the r- only real thing that changed was now when I blacked out and wandered off. I didn't know where I was when I woke up, and so, but it, it there was no there was no marked difference at all in my behavior, which is you know I recognize now that you know I take myself wherever I go, but I didn't yet understand that I was the source of the whole problem. So that went on normal progression and. Um, I remember a particularly poignant moment where I think I really realized this was still several, several years before I ever got sober, but where I realized that there was a real problem. And and I think that alcoholism and addiction, the, the crux of the matter is control. You know, do we are we able to make our own decisions? You know, am I able to make my own decisions and stick by them? Um, and up to that point, everything that alcohol and drugs had cost me were things I, I didn't really care about. I didn't have a car cause I'd lost my, my driver's license. Um, I didn't go to college, et cetera, but those weren't things that I cared about. Other people cared about them, but they weren't really important to me. But something that did matter a lot to me was music. And I got an opportunity to do an apprenticeship with a, with a classical guitar teacher. And it was a really big opportunity for me. And, I was unable to stop drinking and smoking pot enough to, to do it in any meaningful way. I wouldn't study. I wouldn't practice. I it just, and you know, uh, and I knew it and I wanted, you know, I, that was the first time that there was something I wanted myself that, that my addiction was keeping me from. And, and there was a little bit of a light that went off for me during that, but nothing changed. And I lost that apprenticeship and I went on my way. Um, I was playing music at that time a lot, and I I auditioned for a new band, and I went to practice, and we played together. I auditioned, I got the thing, we started playing together, and I would leave that place and be like, those people are more fucked up than I am. Like, what? Like, I am like, you know, high as a kite, smoking pot and drinking, and these people are on another planet. And I found out that they were heroin users. And one night the singer said, do you want to try this? And um, I snorted it and uh, loved it. And wasn't too long after that I was putting needles in my arm. And that just led to, for me, I took that, I took that about as far as you can take it without, um, as, the, as the old saying in recovery, jails, institutions, and death. I had all those things hanging over my head. I was homeless. I lived in the back of a van that I borrowed from the place I worked. I got arrested at work one night. They took the van away. Um, I weighed a hundred pounds. Um, I had hepatitis C. Um, so I was in, I was in pretty bad shape. I had 
probably 25 to 30 years of potential jail time hanging over my head. And so I went into detox at that point simply because I didn't have a better idea. Now, I had wandered into recovery before. I had, I had tried the geographical cure again, moved to the East Coast to this very small town uh, in Connecticut on the ocean where I thought, well, surely there's no heroin there because now I thought heroin was the problem. Um, and there wasn't, of course, but you could borrow somebody's car and drive two hours and, and there I was and it didn't work. And um, things imploded on me there and uh, I went into a three-day treatment and um, it just didn't take. It, it just didn't take. I mean, I, I think I learned something from that. I went to a few meetings, but after 30 days of being clean, I, uh, I watched my sponsor give a lead, and then I walked out and got high, which I used to tease him was a really powerful message he gave that night to, uh, to uh, <laughs> really worked well for me. Um, so I, uh, I went into treatment, or I went into detox that time, no real intention of getting sober. I just didn't know what else to do. Like I said, the place I lived had been taken away from me. Um, I had a $300 a day habit. I knew I was going to be sick. I didn't have a job, which is where I was making most of and stealing most of the money that I used for my habit. And so I went into detox just with no, you know, just like as a hiding place. And while I was there, they said, we think you should go up to our 28-day program. And I said, I don't think, no no and I went back to my room and I had it's hard to give recovery stories without sounding sort of cliche because we say the same sort of things but I had what we would call a moment of clarity which was where I realized like I had a very real sense like I'm gonna die if I go back out there like just this sense that like the game was kind of over um so I went back to them and I said okay I'll go I'll go upstairs to the 28 day detox and that was the beginning of my first recovery. And I went to the 28-day detox, and I started to get a little bit of, after I came out of my deep um, fog from all the detox medicines they had me on, I started to get a little taste of hope, like this might work, like I could actually do it. I was, prior to that, I was in a spot where, you know, I said that I went to uh, treatment program. I went to AA meetings. I walked out after my sponsor led. And so in my mind, I went, I tried that and it didn't work. And so for me, I was in a very hopeless place where I just thought, well, that's it. Once a junkie, always a junkie um, is what I'd always heard. And so, uh, you know, I just thought, well, I guess people like me don't get better. And um, so I went into that 28 day program and I started seeing people who got better. I started seeing uh, people who had the same problems that I had. I started to see the miracle of what a recovery program is, is that I heard people saying the things that were going on in my brain. And I saw what they were doing, the way they were living, and I started to connect the dots a little bit and went, wait, they were once like me. Now they're sober and they seem like they're actually happy about it. Um, maybe this is something I can, I can do because that's the other thing that I wrestled with during that period. And I think a lot of us in recovery wrestle with is that, that for that 30 days that I, I tried to, that I was sober before were misery. I was miserable for those 30 days. And we always hear like, if you just give up the drugs, everything will get better. But the reality in a lot of cases is that things get a little bit worse emotionally before they get better. And so I always tell people I'm working with 
Um, and I think being in a 28 day treatment program helped me to cling to this, which is that don't mistake what being sober is like for what getting sober is like. Being sober is wonderful. There's so many great things to it, but getting sober sucks. I sometimes stay sober today so I don't ever have to do it again because it's just the worst. And so, um, but I started to get a sense like, okay, I can get through this and here's people who are happy. So obviously their experience of sober is different than mine. And so I stuck and when I was in that 28-day treatment program, they said, um, we think that you need to go to a six-month program. And I thought, this is insane. No, I'm not going to do that. And then I just had another, you know, I just had another moment where I was like, all right, I think I'm, I said yes. And um, it ended up that I couldn't get into the program they wanted to put me in. They held me in a 28-day program for about 45 days waiting for something to open up. Nothing opened up. And they finally said, sorry, you have to go home. And so I left and I went to my dad's and I threw myself into recovery. I got up in the morning um, and took a bus downtown, went to a morning meeting, went to a noon meeting, came home, got a ride to a nighttime meeting. I went to about three meetings a day and that was all I did for a little while. I was afraid to do anything else. I had, I now really wanted to be sober. I had been sober long enough, maybe 45 days or so that I went, okay, this is, this is what I want. I don't want to go back to that. And, um, I threw myself into it. And after a couple weeks, a bed opened up in this long-term treatment program. Maybe it had been three weeks. I can't, it was a long time ago now. Um, and I had to decide, do I want to go to this program or not? And a lot of the people that I was in recovery with said, you don't need to go. You're doing fine. Look, you're going to meetings. And, and I just had, I just thought to myself, you know what? I'd rather get on the other end of this and go, well, maybe I didn't need that than be looking back in seven months going, boy, I should have gone to that program. So um, I did. I went into a six-month treatment program. Uh, it was more like a halfway house called the House of Hope that was just a dump. Um, it was, you know, it, they were incredibly strict and obnoxious and, um, and it was great. You know, uh, the treatment program I went to was like one that was paid for by Medicaid. Um, it was, you know, I thought there were a couple of treatment centers in Columbus. I thought the one I was going to was one that I knew of that looked really nice that was by a golf course. And we pulled up in front of it. It turns out that it's an old tuberculosis hospital that is just awful looking. It's got, they, they tore it down several years after I left because it was well past time. Um, and I was in there with, um, you know, uh, sort of the bottom of the bottom. You know, I was in there with, with um, prostitutes and I was in there with pimps and criminals. And I, you know, I grew up sort of, you know, upper middle class maybe. And I was not in, that's not where I was at this point. And it was really, really good for me because I saw like, this is now my peer group. This is where I belong. Um, and that was really good for me to, it gave me a real sense of like, oh, this is, this is what I've done. And the halfway house was the same way. There was nothing nice about it. There was no air conditioning. It was, it sucked. But again, it was a, it was a very clear to me, like I put myself here. Um, and so I got out of that program and I stayed sober for about eight years and I got out of that program and I threw myself into AA wholeheartedly, um, just 
it was my life. I, I went to meetings a lot. I made a ton of friends there. I sponsored a lot of people. I just got very, very involved. I did what people suggest in recovery programs, and it worked perfectly. I was sober. I was relatively happy and content, by and large. Of course, life is life. Um, but I, I really had a great experience and was, was doing great. Um, but I ended up drinking again. And, and I think it's, it's useful for me to talk about what led me to that point again. So um, in recovery, we talk a lot about, at least in 12-step programs, there is, you know, we say there's a spiritual program. There's a series of steps and there's a, you know, the word God gets used in there and higher power. And when I came in, uh, I didn't really believe in God. I still don't really believe in God in the in the conventional sense, but I was so scared in those days. And everybody said, you've got to have, you know, this is the way it works. You, you find a God of your understanding, whatever that is. Um, so I took the God, I adopted the God that was around me in meetings. And the God that was around me in meetings, by and large, was the sort of God that is involved in our lives in like a, in like a real way, like a, you know, well today, you know, it's like, it's a, I, I call it the, you know, the touchdown God. It's the same God athletes thank when they, when they get a touchdown as if God came down and gave them the touchdown. Um, so that's the one I adopted. And I, so I had, for me, what was a very basic crude form of spirituality that I didn't deeply believe. And so I had a crisis happen in my life and my, I, I had gotten, I had gotten married and I had a two and a half year old son and my son was everything to me. And I came home one day and my wife said, I've fallen in love with somebody else. I want you to leave. And my world completely fell apart. Um, you know, I, I was suddenly real dealing with another man parent, you know, being around and parenting my son. And, um, I fell apart, but I stayed sober. I stayed sober through that experience, but what happened was my sense of what spirituality was was completely destroyed because I think I had a sense of like, well, if I do good things, then God will do good things for me. Look, I sponsor so many people. I, um, I just, I felt like this isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't, you know, it was somebody that was an AA. I was mad at AA. Like, how can AA let this happen? How can, like, shouldn't there be, I mean, I know the traditions. I know there's nobody in AA, but I just had this. So I stayed sober through it, but I started drifting away. Um, and I went into a period of time where um, I wasn't drinking, but I wasn't going to very many meetings, and I certainly did not have an interior life to speak of. You know, today, to me, spirituality really means, do I have uh, a connection with things? Am I connected to things? In a very broad sense. And one of the things being connected to is some sort of internal life. You know, am I, am I looking at what's happening inside of myself? And, and I went into a period where I wasn't. And um, I was in my mid-30s at this point. No, I was not that old. I was in my early 30s at this point, and uh, I started smoking cigarettes. And I had managed to be an alcoholic and a heroin addict all those years without ever becoming a smoker. And yet, you know, here I am, you know, seven years sober or something, and I start smoking, which is a clear flashing, like, danger sign that I didn't see. And I, then I also went into a, a, a period of um, relative promiscuity, I guess you would call it. But my whole life was, uh, my whole life became about making myself feel better. 
That was what my life was about. I was in a lot of pain. Things hadn't gone well. I was going to make myself feel better. And eventually, I started to question whether I was an alcoholic. And I looked at myself and I went, well, you know, I've been sober eight years. I've been through a tremendous amount of therapy. I've worked the steps. You know, obviously, you know, doing heroin was a bad idea. We can all agree that you shouldn't do heroin, and I'm not going to do that again. But I was just, you know, I was young. I was a kid. And look, I make good decisions in my life now. Like, I go to work every day, and I'm getting paid well. I have a successful career. I take care of my son. You know, I, I, I'm very responsible with him. I go to the gym every day. I make all these good decisions. Well, maybe isn't alcohol just, an, don't I just need to make good decisions? You know, I'm a different person than I was. And, and again, heroin was the problem. I won't do that again. And then I found out that my brother, who had also been in recovery, maybe about half the time I had, said he had started drinking again about six months ago and everything was fine. And I went, oh, well, see, there goes the genetic piece of all this. I bet I can do it. And so I eventually got to a point where I very consciously said, I think I can drink. And I took a drink, and I expected the, you know, the hammers of God to swing down. Um, because that's the way we talk in recovery, you know. If I took a drink by tomorrow morning, I'd be out on Martin Luther King Boulevard, you know, prostituting myself, and like instant destruction. And when instant destruction didn't come, I had two beers, and I went to bed. I went, see, nothing wrong here. Now, obviously, I'm giving an interview on a show about recovery, so we, we know that the story is going to take a turn for the worse here sooner or later. And so, but for a while, it went fine, you know, and, and that was just more, um, gave more credence to my thought, like it's just about making good decisions, you know, because alcoholism would mean that it's a progressive disease and I'd pick up where I left off, and I didn't. And so... I started drinking and then I started smoking pot and it just progressed. I drank more. I smoked pot more. I just, but on the outside, nothing was going wrong. Um, I got promoted. I got a new job that was better. I was making more money than I had ever made. I was living in a nice house. I mean, I was very successful. Um, and so this went on, but slowly I started to recognize like, uh oh, you know, this isn't, this isn't going very well. Um, I started to recognize that I was internally, that I was powerless over alcohol in the same way that I had been over heroin all those years ago. And so I start, you know, I, I just, I started to get a little bit nervous, like, uh-oh. And I started, some of the people around me started to give me a little bit of grief, um, I, of course, surrounded myself with people who were far worse than me. Um, I was playing in a band, and, and I would be like, those people don't, you can't even keep a job. Like, look at me. Um, but inside me, something was, was happening. And so I decided that it was time to go into something called moderation management. And moderation management is a real program, and it is designed to teach you how to moderate. And their basic premise makes a lot of sense to me. It says that not everybody is so far gone that they need full abstinence through a 12-step program. And I went, well, yeah, it makes sense. Um, and I actually still believe that today. I mean, even the big book of AA says that. You've got your social drinker, you've got a problem drinker, and then you've got the real alcoholic. And I was hoping against hope I was that problem drinker, not the real alcoholic, because I was back in the point where alcohol and drugs were my 
They were my coping mechanism, and the thought of giving them away was terrible. Um, so I launched myself into moderation management with up with a passion. I was determined to figure this out because I knew what came. I knew what came after that, and it was back to back to AA. And I was like, I no, I can't. Just for a lot of reasons, I did not want to do that. So I got into moderation management, and um, I failed spectacularly. I was, and I, I mean, I got the workbook. I participated every day in the groups. It says take 30 days off completely. I took 30 days off completely. I did it. And then I got into the moderation phase. And there's a phrase in the big book that says we got to a point where we were unable to control and enjoy our drinking. And I realized for myself that I couldn't do both those things either. I could control it a little bit by with every ounce of energy and strength I had in my body, I could, you know, keep the wild horse, um, you know, only dragging me at 10 miles per hour through the streets instead of dragging me through at 30 miles per hour. But it took a ton of effort and there was no fun in it. <laughs> the drinking was miserable. It was awful. Or I could let go of the reins and have a good time, but control was out the window and who knew what would happen and, and everything was off. And, and I realized through that practice, like, I can't moderate this. I remember so many nights, I mean, I started gaming the system immediately. Like, you know, oh, well, I used to weigh 10 pounds more than I do now, so we'll use that weight to calculate the number of drinks we can have. And, you know, a drink isn't, you know, two ounces, it's four ounces. And so, I mean, I was gaming it from the beginning. But I remember an awful lot of nights, it'd be 1130 or midnight, and I'd be standing by my kitchen sink, and it's time to go to bed. And I've already drank probably more than I should have, or I'm in the neighborhood, and I really desperately want another drink there's no good reason for it there's no, i'm gonna go walk upstairs and go to sleep there's no reason to have another shot of whiskey at that point and yet i would stand at that sink for five minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes agonizing over this decision and some nights i walked away and plenty of other nights i took another drink and um so moderation management failed um and then i just kind of walked away from it and uh you know, went back to being out of control. And again, nothing really bad was, I mean, there were a couple of embarrassing events. I was, I, uh, I got ordained at one point to be a minister so I could marry friends of mine. And I went to one of my friend's uh, weddings. They had a party the night before. He was getting married on Halloween. We had a costume party the night before. And I got belligerently drunk on moonshine and was dressed as a pregnant nun running around grabbing every man I could find and screaming, you impregnated me, including the bride's father. Um, so they were a little anxious about having me perform their daughter's ceremony the next day. So I had some embarrassing moments, but, um, you know, and I was, I was a blackout drinker then. Uh, I mean, all through my career, I was a blackout drinker then. And I started going on these long binges where I would drink for days and days and days you know, nonstop, wake up, drink. And if I wasn't doing that, I was smoking pot. And I was keeping my job, but not very well. And then, and then uh, I had a seizure at one point because I was drinking on top of antidepressant medications. And, but again, these were all to me like, eh, everything's all right. Um, and then one day um, I, was, I was married and, you know, my wife was giving me pressure. And one day I went to my friend's house 
um, my friend Chris, who's actually the hosts the podcast that I do now or helps with the audio on the podcast I do now. I went to his house and we went out uh, to a bar. I'd been drinking for four or five days straight and I proceeded to make a complete ass out of myself again. It was a karaoke place and I kept climbing on stage with other people doing karaoke to sing background vocals for them and they kept telling me to go away and get off stage and then I would go to the bar and I would pass out for five minutes then I would wake up and have another drink and climb on stage and I went back to my friend you know somehow Chris got me back to his house and I passed out and I woke up the next morning about 9 a.m. and um, the night before had been a night that my son was at the house now my wife was there she got him up she got him to school and all that but that was the first time that I had completely drop the ball like that I had not been there like up until then if I was the you know I used to get my son up every morning for school and take him to school and I wasn't there you know I wasn't there that morning again he got to school fine um, but it really hit I was it hit me in the pit of my stomach and I was so hungover sick after four or five days of drinking and my wife was so mad and I was so horrified the thought of like well what if I'd had a babysitter like and the thought of my son waking up and not having his dad be there was enough for me that I said, I will go back to AA today. And I went back to AA that day. And I went to AA for 30 days, and I hated every single minute of it. I kept sitting in there thinking about how I could design a better recovery program than this one, and this God stuff is bullshit, and, and you know... I, I, you know, these people are making me stop drinking and I fought it and I fought it. And after 30 days, I drank again. Um, we went to my wife's house in Pittsburgh. She went out with some friends and I started sneaking beers into the upstairs bathroom and drank. And the next day we went home and that night I started drinking, like not secretly. And I drank probably a bottle of whiskey, you know, like a fifth of whiskey in like 30 minutes like I couldn't pour it down my throat fast enough there was this desperation and I threw up I was so sick every I mean just this awful I just remember I can I don't have a good memory I remember being in the bathroom just throwing up violently over and over and over and when I came out of that I went back to AA and I've been sober since and I think that that night in the bathroom of drinking, you know, chugging whiskey and throwing up so violently, I think I got, like, this game is played out. Like, there's nothing more here. Um, I think those 30 days I had been fighting, feeling like I had to go to AA because of my son, and I had to go to AA because of my wife, and I had to, and I realized at that point, like, there's just nothing here for me. The good times, all the good that's going to come out of this has been, I've extracted all the good I'm going to get out of alcohol at this point. And the pleasure to pain ratio is going to be so extreme from here on out. And I went back to AA and I stayed sober. And I'm sober now nine years later. It's been a very different recovery though. Because my first recovery, I threw myself into AA and that's all I did. All my friends were in AA. I went to two, three meetings a day. I went to, out to eat before the meeting. I went out after the meeting. I hung out with people. And now I have um, a son and a stepson and a very busy career. And um, it's very different. I go, you know, in the beginning, I go to meetings a lot. But that's it. I kind of go into the meeting, I get what I need, and I leave. Um, 
and I have to address the spiritual thing for myself. I recognize now, you know, as I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm looking back on what went wrong, and I, I went, I didn't have a spiritual program that works. I didn't have anything that when life got rough, which inevitably it does, I didn't have anything to fall back on that supported me. So I decided that I was going to go into this one, and I was going to find a spiritual program that worked for me, and that meant that I was going to have to say, I don't believe in God. Um, that I was going to have to find a way to make the 12 steps work from starting from that perspective. Or I don't, or at the very least, I don't believe in a God and in an interventionist God. I don't believe in a God who's going to come down and meddle in human affairs in any way, shape, or form. Um, so I started working with that. And I, you know, I started with the group being the, you know, the group being my higher power. And, and to me, t- t- still today, that's a pretty big piece of it. It's broadened for me into other people are my higher power. It's not just AA. Other people are. But also I focused on principles, like principles of, of kindness or honesty or um, responsibility. And I, I made those principles my higher power. And I got to a point where I believe, where I, where I got to where I believed that if I lived my life according to those principles, I could handle whatever life gave me without having to drink. Um, and so that became a place that I could build a spiritual life off of um, that was real to me, that I deeply believed and felt like it was mine. And, um, and I could go to the meeting and I, I could listen to people talk about their belief in God and I no longer had any problem with it, really. By and large, I went to each their own. I just don't believe that. And, and ultimately, it was, ultimately for me, it was the reason that people say they believe in God in the rooms that drove me away. And it was because they'd say, there for the grace of God go I. And I would look at that and I would think of all my friends who'd come into recovery and gone back out and all the people I knew who had died. And I went... Well, how does that work? Like, God picked me, but not them. Like, and I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile myself to that. That's just me. I'm not saying it's that way for anybody, but I couldn't. Um, and so then, so then I recognized that, okay, well, this is my higher power is this, um, group of people. Um, it's these principles. And so that worked, but my recovery has been very different because I have drifted away from AA a little bit. I still go to meetings occasionally, but what I got out of AA and I still, I I still answer the phones for central office once a month. I, you know, I have some degree of involvement, but what I got out of AA was that, you know, it's a, it's a spirit. If we, if, we stay sober based on our spiritual condition is what it says in the AA big book. So what does that mean? What is a spiritual connection? Um, and I started to realize that that had to do a lot with what was happening inside of myself. Was I, um, was I focusing on those principles I described? Was I living my life by them? Was I helping other people? Um, was I, you know, did I have some sort of spiritual practice? And so several years ago, I started a podcast called The One You Feed, and it's based on a parable that a lot of people in recovery have heard about how we all have two bad wolves inside of us, and, you know, one's good. One, one, we have two wolves inside of us. One's good, one's bad, and the one that wins is the one you feed, which I heard in recovery. And so every week I interview people on the show about that parable. And I started that show really because I needed constant reminder to work on my insides because 
out and about in the world, that's just not the message, right? We just don't get taught that. Now, AA teaches us that when we're in meetings, but outside of that, the world doesn't do that. And I, I wanted that for myself. And what I found was, and, you know, I suppose there could, you know, there's always room for self-deception. But what I found was that by doing that every week, which meant that I was reading the, the guest I would have on that week, I would read their books the whole week before. So I was always reading spiritual literature or self-development literature. I mean, constantly, every week. And, but not in, in a real way, like I have to understand it. And I have to be able to then go have a conversation about it. And then I'm talking to those people. And very quickly after I started the show, all of a sudden, lots of people started listening. And so I'm having interactions with all these people. Um, and so that was, you know, that so I started doing that and I've been doing that for several years and it doesn't, it's not in place of AA, but it has taken, it is what I use to stay spiritually connected, to stay spiritually fit. I've built a life at this point that is, that has that baked into it for me. Um, and so far, you know, I'm nine years in, that is still working and I'm probably at a more peaceful and content and under my, understand myself position more than I've ever been. And what's interesting is I host this podcast and I'm, I'm sharing lessons with people. It's so funny. I recognize how much of everything that I share and my philosophy on life, how much of it came from what I learned in recovery. People are like, you're so wise. And I'm like, no, I just really got my ass handed to me like four times. And so I had to go to these rooms every day for years. And this is, I heard all this stuff over and over and over and over. Um, and so, you know, if I'm wise, it's just I was forced to it. Um, but, the, you know, the stuff that I learned in AA saved my life, and it, it is such a core part of everything that I still do today. And, you know, I've also recognized that ten, you know, steps 10, 11, and 12, you know, they call them the maintenance steps. And I recognize that those steps are part of my life every day. Like, at this point after nearly, you know, it's been about 17 years of my adult, you know, the vast majority of my adult life has been in recovery. And I realized that that idea of a 10th step of looking at my part in things and recognizing is baked into my brain at this point. It happens constantly. I'm always going, what was my role? What was my role? You know, it's, it's a part of who I am now. It, it, I did it often enough till it became embedded and I meditate every day. It's part of my life. And Every day I try and start the day and end the day by thinking about who can I help? What can I do? And my show does fulfill a lot of that for me. So it feels to me like, you know, steps 10, 11, and 12, I'm working, you know, every day just very consistently as part of my life. And, and I'm confident that as long as I keep doing that, I'll have a contented and powerful sobriety. And I think that is where I'm going to end. You have been listening to Qualified. Qualified is not affiliated with any recovery program. All organizations, institutions, books, people, places, things, and opinions expressed by each guest are entirely their own, part of their own journey of recovery, and not intended as medical advice. Qualified will never make a profit. We are self-supporting based on our own contributions and those of listeners. If you would like to donate to Qualified, please write us at qualifiedpodcast at gmail.com. All contributions go toward the production of the show, with any extra monies being donated to a pool of recovery-based organizations as suggested by our guests. 
If you have a story of recovery and you would like to be a guest on Qualified, please write us at qualifiedpodcast at gmail.com. If you are suffering from an addiction, there is help for you and there is hope for you. We on this podcast are living proof. Thank you for listening.